This episode was paid in full by DTN Progressive Farmer. The November WASDI brought with it big surprises for a corn crop that's had an unpredictable year. But how will changes to yield expectations this late in the game affect the market as it looks to the year ahead? That's today on Field Posts. DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. The November WASD dropped Thursday, November 9th, bringing with it the unexpected announcement of a record corn crop. After late season drought impacted much of the corn belt, this update came as a shock to market watchers and helped contribute to a bearish outlook in the marketplace. DTN's lead analyst, Todd Holtman, joins us today to offer his insight on what's informing USDA's yield outlook and what farmers should consider as 2023 yield estimates move towards that final January figure. We'll discuss the latest on the global weather picture and how an optimistic outlook in Latin America will likely drive the market going forward. We'll also dig into the Chinese demand picture, as well as Russian actions in the wheat market as U.S. growers continue to struggle to find buyers abroad. Plus, Todd will explore the latest hit to the cattle markets, as well as ongoing news in hogs. We'll talk energy prices, interest rate hikes, and why Todd is following global geopolitics and trade partnerships so much as he looks to the year ahead. All that and more right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by the DTN Ag Summit, this year happening virtually. Here's Katie Dellinger for a little bit more on the agenda and how to register. DTN Ag Summit this year, our theme is going to be Fortify Your Financial Foundation, really looking at a lot of the issues that form the basis of farmers' balance sheets, their equity position, their land, what's going on with their interest rate expense, how are they managing their business and their technology costs to make the best of it. I'm excited for it. Our our session on land values. With that group, I think we're going to have a really good conversation about who's buying in cash, who's buying the competition, and that complexion between investors and farmer owner operators, what that means. I think we'll have a good discussion of the implications of foreign land ownership. I know that is a topic in Congress and I think we're going to be getting some firsthand perspective from people who are really into the weeds and the buying and selling of farmland as to what kind of real impact that has on land values. And I think we're going to also maybe touch into some of the things like what things like solar can do to farmland values and some of those land issues that are related to those. We are working right now to get some different voices from a couple of different lenders for some of these pieces. We also bring in our internal experts. We're going to be having our weather and our market outlooks for 2024. Those are always done by lead analyst Todd Holtman and our meteorologist John Baranek. We'll have them back again to really give their insights. So we're going to be looking at all of that in a really comprehensive way over this two-day event. To register for and learn more about the 2023 DTN Ag Summit virtual event taking place December 5th and 6th, visit dtn.com backslash 2023-ag-summit-series or click on the link in the show notes and stay tuned to the podcast for more information. 
Now back to the show. DTN's lead analyst Todd Holtman joins us today to discuss the latest news from the November World Agriculture Supply and Demand Estimates. Todd, let's start talking a little bit about expectations. We're like most of the way done with harvest in most parts of the country probably and have some field reports for this WASD, but what were your expectations going into the report? Yeah, from what I've heard around the country, Sarah, I think overall producers have been pleasantly surprised by their corn yields being better than expected. That doesn't mean they were great yields everywhere because we certainly had uh, rough conditions that didn't get a lot of rain for long periods of time. But overall, it, it seemed like almost no matter where you were, with the exception of Nebraska, I'll say, it seemed like most producers were reporting better than expected corn yields. On the soybean side, kind of the opposite story, to be honest, and especially in the Western Corn Belt, I was really expecting a possibility that we would have lower than expected corn yields. The reports from out east have been good. Illinois, Indiana, we know that they've done very well this year and came around and didn't have quite the stress that we saw in the western end. So I've heard a lot of guys sound disappointed about their soybean yields. And so for that reason, I thought there was a chance we might see a little lower crop estimate in today's report. And then we had the report itself, which had a at least one big surprise, but yeah, give us kind of the top line <laughs> of what you saw today. Yeah, so the first thing everybody noticed right off the bat at 11 o'clock when the reports came out is that we have a new record corn crop being estimated, and that surprised me. Yes, I thought maybe the yields would be a little better than expected, but I didn't expect 174.9, which is where USDA pegged it this month. The crop estimate now, 15.23 billion bushels. As I say, beat the old record from 2016 and was up 170 million bushels from last month's estimate. So that, uh, that was a bit of a surprise and it had a bit of a bearish reaction uh, to the corn price uh, here on Thursday. We've seen a little bit of market reaction since a few hours ago when the report came out, but how much of what we're seeing today in terms of trading do you think is linked to the report? And how do you expect that to continue to maybe play out tomorrow and maybe into early next week? Yeah, the first question, I think most of today's reaction was related to a combination of this WASD report. And of course, in the case of corn, uh, getting a record crop estimated. And, you know, when you think of the weather challenges that we went through this year, it still shocks me a bit to think that we came up with a record corn crop uh, after all that. But the other part of today's story, I think there was some bearish influence from outside markets. We saw the stock market sell off Thursday afternoon. There were comments from Federal Reserve Chairman Powell that they're still very committed to bringing inflation down to 2%. And... In a lot of people's minds, myself included, that translates to meaning that we're going to have to have more rate hikes ahead then. And so I think that also weighed on commodity markets here on Thursday. Let's get into the details a little bit. So we talked about the updated kind of yield figures for a record crop here. How does that fit into USDA's perspective on kind of global stocks for corn today? Okay, so probably the U.S. estimate going higher today was the biggest change on the world balance sheet uh, that we saw. We didn't see a lot of other big changes 
<clears throat> excuse me, we did see Ukraine's crop estimate go up one and a half million metric tons, and we saw a similar increase in the crop corn crop estimate uh, from Russia. But the estimates from down south, Argentina and Brazil, both stayed uh, at their same levels from last month. So the U.S. was really the big change in, in the world balance sheet, and we're still uh, looking at the the highest world-ending corn stocks, excluding China, that we've seen in six years. We have more of a well-supplied market this year, both in the U.S. and the world. And I imagine that also caused some shifts maybe on the demand side of the ledger. What updates did USDA make on that end? Yeah, good point. Anytime they increase the crop estimate and there's going to be more corn around, they're going to find some more demand for that higher supply total. So we did see feed demand go up 50 million bushels. It's now at 5.65 billion. We saw ethanol estimate go up 25 million bushels. And by the way, the margins at ethanol plants have been very strong lately, especially largely because of the lower corn prices we're seeing, but also just that ethanol and distiller grains are holding up their value fairly well uh, in this market. And then lastly, we saw the export estimate for corn increase by 50 million bushels. And one of the nice surprises is that we've seen the pace of corn export sales uh, up quite a bit this year from a year ago. We're up 31% to date compared to a year ago on sales and shipments of corn. And that's nice to see. Speaking of the export market, I'm curious, uh, you know, I just talked about the global stocks picture, but I imagine increasing attention as the U.S. crop season comes to an end on the Latin American crop and what that's looking like, what's the update in terms of what the perspective on what's happening in Latin America right now? Yes, and I should say that you know, I think we'll get beyond this November WASDE report fairly quickly and the weather or our attention will go back to weather. So when we're looking at Brazil and Argentina, let me just say first, because it's the easiest one, Argentina is doing much better in terms of rainfall uh, than it did last year at this time. And their soil moisture is improving. They have more active rainfall pattern in the forecast. So it looks like Argentina's corn crop is going to come in much better shape. Uh, and of course, it's still being planted. So we're talking in very early stages of the season yet. In the case of Brazil, there's some early threats and challenges uh, already. In central and northeastern Brazil, it's been drier than normal. We're not seeing much rain in the forecast for about at least the next 10 days. They're going to have some hot temperatures up there. And, of course, the sandy soils don't do well. Now, much of that's affecting the soybean crop right now, which is still in the process of being planted in those areas. But... We need strong, abundant, rainy season type soil moisture in those areas to have the safrina corn crop start in good shape when that gets planted in February and March. So that's the concern. And it, as I say, these are still very early concerns uh, down the road, but uh, it, a concern for corn nonetheless. Last question on the corn market. Talk to us about what all of this is meaning for basis at the moment, especially given the time of year. Sure. For this time of year, if we compare to the last 10 years, our corn basis is really pretty much right in the middle of the range. ETN's National Corn Index closed at 451 a bushel. 
on Wednesday evening. That's 25 cents below the December futures. And we're weaker than we were last year, but last year was a very historically strong basis that we were dealing with. So we're really back in the kind of more normal uh, average part of the range here. Uh, Let's switch gears and focus in a little bit on soybeans. Talk about the global stocks picture maybe at the moment. Sure. Well, of course, USDA does basically a snapshot of the world soybean stocks. So they look at what they expect U.S. and Northern Hemisphere ending stocks to be in the fall, and then they take a snapshot estimate of what they expect South American supplies to be at that same time. Today's estimate of soybean stocks in the world came down slightly from 115.6 to 114.5 million metric tons. In the bigger picture, that just doesn't really mean a lot, uh, Sarah. It's not much of a change. There was one interesting feature in USDA's report today. They went back and revised some prior years for Brazil and uh, China. And of course, it always makes me nervous when I hear them do that because sometimes you can get some big distortions (laughs) or from what we're used to. But in this case, it really, uh, they kind of washed out. They didn't have a lot of impact on the bottom line. For Brazil, they went back in prior years and added 2 million metric tons of soybeans to Brazil's supplies. But in the case of China, they took away 3 million metric tons. Well, as I say, I think the good news is it didn't have a big impact on the world estimates. And when it came to South America this time around, they had no changes to offer for either Argentina, Brazil, or Paraguay. And that's reasonable this early in the season. Even though we do have some early weather threats, we're still about at the 50% mark in planting in Brazil. So there's still time to account for problems. You talked a little bit about the corn uh, yield update from this report, but talk a little bit about what USDA had to say about the U.S. soybean yield. Yes. As I mentioned, I had a little hopes maybe that there would be a bit lower soybean yield estimate on the U.S. soybeans side, but that was not the case. USDA came out and slightly increased the yield estimate from 49.6 to 49.9 bushels an acre. That increased our crop estimate 25 million bushels. So this is not a big change, but now we're looking at a 4.13 billion bushel soybean crop. That's still among the smallest that we've seen in four years. So we just didn't plant many soybeans this year, not like we did corn. And because of that, supplies are going to stay very tight. USDA did not change the demand estimates for crush or exports. Uh, they basically just carried the 25 million bushel increase in the crop right down to the ending stocks. So now we're looking at 245 million bushels of ending soybean stocks at the end of this year, which is still an eight-year low. So it, even with today's small increase, it's still a very tight soybean market that we're looking at. And the fun part is we're seeing this threatening weather in Brazil. So it's going to be interesting to see how that turns out. Are you still watching? I think about soybeans in particular because they tend to be harvested later. But when you're looking at like USDA's updated yield figures, are you worried at all that that there might still be space for that to move over the next couple of months before the January WASDE? Not really. Not so much, to be honest. We've had a very good season of favorable harvest weather. And actually, a couple weeks ago, we had a storm move through the northern plains that brought some snow and rain. And so actually, in the northwestern states, there was a big push to get the soybeans out ahead of that storm. 
And because of that, we're very far along and ahead of the usual schedule. So the, the soybean harvest, I think it was 90%, 91% done in uh, the most recent crop progress report. There's just not a lot left. And where it is left is in the southern states where they're more comfortable with the later harvest. I want to talk a little bit about the soybean demand picture. Obviously, exports have been a big focus of the conversation, but also the biodiesel picture. So give us an update on the soybean demand situation. Yeah, well, biodiesel production, as far as we can tell, is still going great guns. They keep showing very strong expansion. In the month of August, we had another very high level of soybean oil being used to make renewable diesel. It was just under 1.2 billion pounds for the month. I believe that was the third consecutive month that it had been well over a billion pounds, and that was really for the first time in history. So that whole story continues to have bullish potential to it. But the funny thing is, soybean prices, soybean oil prices have really been uh, holding back around their lowest uh, prices in the past four months stand down at those lower levels while it's soybean meal that has really been on fire as far as the price rally which started in october and is carrying on through early november so we're seeing new contract highs in december soybean meal uh, prices and all we can say is because of the market clues we have in front of us it looks like there's very legitimate strong commercial demand for very limited supplies of meal and given the fairly tight supply situation that we're going to have with our soybeans in the season ahead. It's just hard to see that changing very much uh, anytime in the next several months. And what how does all that mean for a soybean basis at the moment? <clears throat> soybean basis like corn has reverted back to more normal levels uh, for this time of year. Again, we had a much stronger basis last year, but uh, right now, we're 63 cents under the January contract as the average national basis. Now, of course, that is different in local areas and depending on where you're at, but that's the national average. And again, that just puts us right in the middle of the where we typically see basis over the past 10 years. And that surprises me a little bit, too, to be honest, because we do have a tight supply situation in soybeans and we have very strong, robust demand. So I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see basis improvement in the months ahead. And then I was so disappointed this spring to see so much planting go to corn, knowing that soybeans just inherently has a much stronger fundamental situation and generally tends to have the more profitable price. And so here we are again at another fall and we're seeing soybean prices at a very profitable levels while corn is basically being protected by crop insurance. Let's talk a little bit about wheat. What were the updates in terms of a global stock picture, I think, is probably on everyone's mind. Any updates from USDA there? Yeah, it was a curious thing here today. If we just put our eyes on the estimate of ending world stocks, there was not much change. It was slightly higher today, went up to 258.7 million metric tons. That was less than a million metric tons higher from last month. But looking at the changes in the crop estimates for the different countries, uh, the one I was most interested in was Russia because Russian government came out early last week, I believe, and uh, said that they had a 93 million metric ton crop. That's quite a bit above USDA's estimate of 85. And we've heard a lot of private estimates that 
put Russia's crop in the at least upper 80s or lower 90s. USDA came out today. They raised their crop estimate, 5 million metric tons for Russia. Now it's up to 90 million metric tons. So I think it's a more legitimate estimate that USDA has now. But when we go down the list of all the production estimates, the production estimates for wheat were actually down this month by 1.4 million metric tons. And one of the estimates that we can see that offset Russia's increase was there was a nearly 3 million metric ton drop in India's crop estimate. And they took a million and a half off of Argentina, where we know Argentina has been experiencing dry weather for their wheat crop. So it, it was a surprise to me to see that when you added all the production estimates up together, we were actually lower, in, and also including that 5 million metric ton increase for Russia. So at the end of the day, I think USDA has a more legitimate-looking world balance sheet today than they did a month ago. And that just makes me all the more impressed that when you look at world-ending wheat stocks excluding China, we're still showing the lowest level in 15 years. So really, the only thing holding down international world prices of wheat is the Russian price. And it's because they've had two very big crops in a row, and they're aggressively pricing their wheat cheap for strategic purposes, is my contention. So that continues to be a very unique time in history uh, that we're seeing in this wheat market. And I'm not sure Russia can keep doing this through winter, but we'll see. Time will tell. And we've talked a lot in the last couple of months in particular about the demand picture for wheat in the U.S. and the export picture in particular. Do USDA have any updates there? Yeah, we were actually expecting USDA just to stand pat at an ending stocks estimate of 670 million bushels, but they found a little increase in today's report and they bumped it up to 684 million bushels. And they did that with a by increasing the import estimate 10 million bushels, and they reduced the food demand estimate by 4 million bushels. So these are very minor changes. We're still looking at the second lowest U.S. total for wheat supplies in the past 10 years. In normal times, I'll say normal with air quotes around them, we would typically see better prices than we're seeing for these lower supplies today. But as I say, Russia's really got a strong grip on holding down that international wheat price. And that's it's been very difficult for us to find any room in the world of exports. And what has that meant for the wheat basis? Not so good, to be honest. As we take a look at the wheat basis, we're looking at the national average cash price is 64 cents under the December contract. Looking at the past 10 years, this is the second weakest of the past 10 that we've seen. So it's one of the worst basis situations we've seen in a long time. I do remember the HRW wheat basis at one time going over a dollar in previous history, and thankfully we're not at that level yet, but we're we're the next worst thing to it. I want to switch gears again, leaving wheat, talking a little bit about livestock and the livestock picture, cattle markets in particular, USDA updates coming out of this report. What were you looking for? What did you see? Yeah, forget USDA for the moment. Let's just look at the price. We really got hammered on that livestock price 
today. Let me bring it up here. December cattle down five dollars and five cents uh, here on Thursday's trade. Feeders down seven eighty-five. Now we can go back to USDA and see what happened. And honestly, I don't see anything in USDA's estimates in particular to trigger that kind of bearish selling. So let me just try to describe what they did here. For the 2023 production estimate for beef, it was reduced 44 million pounds, which is not a big change. The notable thing is that we've, I've noticed the slaughter levels seem disappointing just in the last week or two. And I think that's been weighing on prices a bit. But for some reason, for the first quarter of 2024, USDA increased their beef production estimate 235 million pounds, which surprises me given how the slaughter pace has been tailing off uh, lately. So I think moving forward, we're still going to have some concerns on the retail side. We've also seen box beef prices slip below $300. And then we got those comments today from Federal Reserve Chairman Powell that I mentioned earlier. We saw the stock market sell off, and I think that was all hitting the cattle market. And then on top of that, we got cash trade reports of $4 lower in the south, $5 lower in the north. So it was a tough day for cattle. But overall, I think a lot of this still is non-commercial selling when we see them uh, bail out this this quickly and this harshly. And on the pork side, uh, what did you see from this report and what did you expect in terms of impact for that? Yeah, it was a very quiet report for the pork side. We just saw a small uh, decrease of 72 million pounds in the pork production estimate for this year. For the first quarter of 2024, there was a 50 million pound uh, reduction in that estimate for pork production. But honestly, the pork slaughter levels have been holding up really well. So I don't have a lot of concerns as far as the slaughter level or the production side of pork. When it came to the quarterly price estimates for barrows and gilts, USDA lowered its estimate in the first quarter by $3 down to 57 uh, dollars. So they still have a bit of a softer outlook. We are, we have ca- cash hog prices right now that just seem stuck in a rut. It's hard to get much lift or support out of them. You have to wonder what Prop 12 is doing to the whole pork market in general. And then I think we have these concerns about the retail counter. But overall, I, I, I the U.S. economy still seems in fairly good shape. And as long as people are working and the jobs numbers still are very encouraging. I think we ought to keep muddling along, at least on the demand side, okay. Yeah. Great transition there, too. Uh, Usually we save a little bit of time at the end of the podcast here to talk about current events and how those might be impacting the markets. I think the interesting thing maybe since last month's report in early October and today is very limited new things happening. There's still obviously two ongoing conflicts in the world, but uh, that doesn't seem to be disrupting the markets too much. As you mentioned, the Fed is thinking about rate hikes, but we've already done rate hikes and it has not caused the bottom to fall out of really anything yet. The jobs reports are still looking pretty good. And we have some modicum of political stability in this country, it seems like. Uh, So I'm curious, given I'm gonna aggressively knock on wood and say loosely (laughs) things seem pretty stable at the moment. 
Is there anything yeah. in particular you will be paying attention to or watching in the next month or so that you think might throw a wrench or it'd still be a wild card if that might affect commodity markets? Yeah, the big topics on my list are probably the usual suspects. And that's the jobs numbers, that's the energy prices, and that's any changes in these two very active wars that we have going on. And that probably is where I think the big focus of possible changes could always come from. I'm guessing since Israel got attacked on October 7th, the last time we talked a month ago, still probably had a concern about what crude oil prices were going to do with a potential conflict in the Middle East. And not potential, but we do have a conflict in the Middle East right now. The good news has been in the past month, we have not seen that conflict widen in a dramatic way. And I think the bulls that responded by buying crude oil on the attack on Israel news looks like they've become impatient and got disappointed with nothing catastrophic happening in terms of a wider escalation of the conflict that's there. So we do see there's been a calming in the crude oil price. Instead of being up around 88 or $90 a barrel, now we're down around 75 or $76 a barrel. And that helps ease a lot of the inflation concerns. We also saw a Federal Reserve announcement on November 1st where they came out and held the course on interest rates. They did not hike it another quarter percent, as we thought earlier, like before the attack on Israel, that the Fed might do. That kind of bought the market some time and eased some of those interest rate pressures that we've seen. But as the Fed chairman reminded us today, those basic concerns are still there. They haven't gone away. Inflation's not 2% yet. There's still a strong case to be made for more rate hikes. And it's just a matter of when the Fed might be more comfortable to do that again. So the, it's, it's a very dicey situation. We still have a very active war in Ukraine going on, Russia making daily and weekly attacks on Ukrainian ports. And there's uh, always a chance that that could escalate. And there's always a chance that the Middle East uh, situation could escalate. But so far, because both of those things have become contained, we've gotten lulled into thinking, I guess we can get by things, things seem okay, but you never know. You might wake up one morning and find a different world. I have one last question for you. You will obviously <laughs> be speaking at the DTN Ag Summit about this yeah. time next month. Obviously one of the yep. most oh, hotly awaited uh, events of the year is hearing what you have to say about your outlook for markets in the year to come. So 2024, I'd love to hear not a preview per se, but just like what's <laughs> on your mind as you think about 2024, maybe a little bit more long-term for the future crop season. Yeah, no surprise. If anybody's been reading my market comments or any Todd's take stuff lately, it's probably no surprise that I'm still anticipating a very tight soybean market. And we seem to have a good window of opportunity here before the next Brazilian crop comes in. And now with the weather 
uh, situation at risk here. That it'll be a very interesting early 2024, I think, to see how this works out. But in the bigger picture, Sarah, it's really about the uh, increasing competition that the U.S. is facing in the world. And of course, we're seeing it most directly from Brazil and Argentina, the combination of the two of them. But there's also a concerted support system for Brazil to keep pushing production the way it has. And that support system has a lot to do with this this conglomeration of BRICS, and, and that includes China. And so there's some malevolent players in the world really pushing for increased corn and soybean production, which is going to be very hard on our U.S. farmers, and we're already feeling the heat of that competition. And then on the same side, on the wheat, we're definitely feeling the heat of that competition from Russia. So it's it's a complicated world. There's brand new threats. This is a lot different than the post-World War II scenario where it, it seemed like the U.S. could do no wrong and we just had good markets everywhere. So it's a big challenge ahead. And I always have a lot of faith in agriculture that we've gotten here by miracles before and we'll need some more miracles ahead. But that that seems to be how we live. You can read Todd's full analysis and catch up on up-to-the-minute reporting on all things ag markets at dtnpf.com or in the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. And to watch Todd's monthly WASD webinars live on the day the WASD drops, head over to dtn.com backslash resources to register. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Todd Holtman. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier, Kylie Swanson, and Susan Payne. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode is brought to you by DTN Haytimer. Hay and forage quality isn't just about yield. It also relies on the perfect weather window to ensure a good crop. Use DTN Haytimer, part of MyDTN, to quickly assess risk by viewing maps specifically designed to show circumstances affecting hay quality. Pennsylvania producer David Graybill said, quote, other weather forecasts were not accurate enough. As DTN Haytimer shows, it takes the right combination of drying to preserve the crop. I would guess we lost three to four times the value in crops that it would cost us to keep our DTN subscription for the year. DTN Haytimer is part of the MyDTN platform. Visit MyDTN.com to start a free 14-day trial.